Hi, this is Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust, and you're listening to Capital Considerations. Recently, setting growing risks stemming from catastrophes, such as wildfires and the related rebuilding costs, which increasingly seem to be annual events, a major insurance company, specifically State Farm, has made the critical decision to no longer offer homeowners insurance to California residents. Given this news, we feel it's a good time to revisit a previous Capital Considerations episode featuring Karen Clark, a leading expert in catastrophe modeling. In this episode, Karen and I discussed how insurers, corporations, and public agencies use catastrophe modeling to estimate and prepare for future losses from climate-related natural disasters. I hope you find this discussion timely and insightful. We'll be back with new episodes in the coming weeks. This is Tony Roth, and you are listening to Wilmington Trust's Capital Considerations. We have a really interesting episode today, the first episode of a series of episodes that all fit under the same arch of the economic impact of climate change. We're going to start today on that topic, what we think of as catastrophe modeling and the implications for climate change on things like real estate, personal real estate, commercial real estate, etc. We're here today with Karen Clark from Karen Clark and Company. She's a co-founder of the company and really the first what we call a catastrophe modeling firm in the industry. She created the first model for catastrophe modeling back in 1987, and she's been a well-recognized leading expert in the space since that time, so many years now. And she's been recognized for her contributions to the space, including, and very importantly, winning an award called the Nobel Peace Prize Certificate. 2007 for her contributions to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And this had a lot to do with really establishing that climate change was real, something that we accept, I think, now pretty broadly. But there was a long time when folks didn't really accept that climate change was a phenomenon and that it was man-made and so on and so forth. This is really a privilege to be able to have Karen here with that kind of gravitas and background to talk to us about what is an increasingly prevalent set of phenomenon across our country and the world with catastrophic events ensuing as a result of climate change. So Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Tony. Maybe you could talk to us about that forefront of modeling of climate change and your work many years ago with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and how that has been a watershed event, if you will, for the world and understanding the significance of climate change. Sure, and perhaps a few words of background on the IPCC. IPCC was formed in 1988 as a collaboration between the United Nations and the World Meteorological Organization. And the mission was to provide government policymakers with the current state of knowledge with respect to climate change and to make you know potential recommendations for uh, policy actions. How they have implemented their mission is by producing reports. So about every five or six years starting in 1990, they'll produce a new set of reports with the most current science. To produce those reports from early on, they had to reach out to the global scientific community to get volunteers 
who would participate in uh, the writing of those reports. So, uh, so I uh, volunteered and I was a lead author on some of the early chapters on the financial impacts of climate change. So I provided some modeling and also materials for those chapters discussing even way back then uh, what could be the potential financial impacts. And many people may know that in 2007, the IPCC, along with Al Gore, uh, received the Nobel Peace Prize. And it was very uh, kind of them, but what they did is they made replicas of the Nobel Peace Prize certificate uh, that were personalized uh, with people's names on it. I was one, some of the early contributors to those reports. So that's how I personally was honored for my contributions to those um, early activities of the IPCC. Well, that's exciting, albeit you probably didn't get the call from Stockholm at 2 a.m. famously to, to wake you up and, and let you know about that, but it's still, I'm sure you have that very prominently displayed someplace. I certainly would, so that's really cool. Your specialty is when we think about the economic impacts of climate change, which is the broad rubric for the series that we're starting here, you focus on primarily a subset of that, which is catastrophe. So for example, you wouldn't focus on the gradual warming of the globe and the economic impact on, for example, water resource utilization because the water's evaporating or so on and so forth. You rather would focus on the fact that climate change would create a higher incidence of fire or hurricanes or floods or those types of things. Do I have that right? That's exactly correct. And the models are very sophisticated scientific tools, but they're designed to estimate the financial impacts from extreme events. And most of those extreme events that we deal with are weather-related, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, winter storms, but also earthquakes and some other perils that are not weather-related. It, it's interesting talking about the IPCC because, as you know, in the early days of the study of climate change, it was very focused on the science and what's happening with sea surface temperatures, uh, global air temperatures, these slow-moving phenomenon, how greenhouse gas emissions are influencing that. And it's only been relatively recently, actually I would say in the latest IPCC report, which was released in 2021, AR6, where the uh, scientific consensus gave high confidence to climate change impacts on extreme events, such as hurricanes, wildfires, and floods. And I think talking about the confidence level is very important because the science does have a lot of uncertainty around it. So as I said today, we do have high confidence around climate change impacts on uh, certain extreme events. When we had that series of hurricanes specifically, probably around 10 years ago, we had Sandy and Irene all come up to the, the East Coast, hit New York City. Of course, New York City became flooded in the, the lower part of the city, which hadn't happened in a century. I think it was at that time when people started to take stock of the reality that climate change was not only responsible for the broad warming of the planet, but also there might be a connection between climate change and the incidence of these more extreme events. And now, of course, you also have the prevalence of forest fires that you're seeing where we also believe there may be a connection. Does that all sound correct? 
Yes, absolutely. And, you know, early on, there was a lot of confusion between weather and the climate. And I think we've gone beyond that now. So people understand that just because it's warmer, you know, this February than it was uh, than average, um, or if it was colder, for example, doesn't mean there's no climate change. And the impacts of climate change, we know, are not uniform around the globe. Um, some pl places are experiencing, for example, can experience more extreme floods, some less. But it is true, as we discussed, that more recently there has been a growing scientific consensus on the impacts of climate change on these extreme events. Let's start with the catastrophe modeling itself. What is it? How do you do it? What value does it have and to whom? Sounds like maybe insurance companies. <laughs> yes. Well, it is true that the primary users to date of catastrophe models are insurance companies, because when you think about these uh, multi-billion dollar events, you mentioned Sandy and Irene, and we just had Hurricane Ian, that's likely to cause 50 to $60 billion in insured losses. So when you think about these extreme events, a lot of the tab is picked up by insurance companies. So obviously they need to know what to expect with respect to these events. I already mentioned that the models are, you know, scientific tools are based on science, they're based on engineering, and they're designed to estimate the uh, financial impacts of these extreme events. And more specifically, they focus on property damage. So damage and loss to homes, to businesses, to other types of physical structures. So we're really talking about the property damage, the physical loss from these events. And what was really unique about the models, the really powerful aspect of the catastrophe models is that they not only provide information on say, if a category five hurricane hits Miami, uh, the loss would be, you know, certainly over a hundred billion dollars. The more important information provided by the models are the probabilities of those amounts. The models can estimate by geography, you know, how likely are we to have a hundred billion dollar hurricane in the Northeast versus Florida versus Texas? How likely are we to have a $20 billion loss, 30 billion, 40 billion all along the coastline? And the models are very high resolution. So you can actually take that all the way down to an individual location. So the models actually produce expected loss estimates down to the individual property level. Essentially what those companies are doing is they're summing all of those possible losses on a probabilistic basis, and then they're spreading their exposure over multiple years across their customer base. And also geographically diversifying the risk. When you think about it, you know, insurance is very important. I mean, societies could not really develop and grow without uh, insurance because you would hit it on the head. Insurance spreads the risk. So you pay a small premium every year for your homeowner's insurance so you don't have to pay, you know, 500000 in one shot or a million dollars if your home is destroyed by a fire or by a hurricane. So why they need the models is because they need to do a couple things. One, they need to make sure they're not overly exposed to one event. So you wouldn't want to write all your policies in Miami and then if that $500 billion event happens, you may end up having $50 billion of that loss, which would 
make you insolvent. So we wanna make sure that insurance companies can stay solvent after these events. So they need to spread the risk. They need to make sure they're not overly concentrated. And of course, everyone's favorite topic is they have to price the risk. Okay, so they have to tell homeowners in Miami what they need to pay each year relative to someone, as you said, in Albany or on Long Island. And I know it may be hard to believe for some people, but really the job of the insurance industry is to make sure prices are fair, fair and reasonable. So uh, if you live in a higher risk area, I think we would all agree if you live on the coast of Miami, you probably should pay more than the person in Albany for uh, hurricane insurance. So that's another important use of the catastrophe models is to distinguish and actually put a number on that. One of the things that I find to be really counterintuitive, but but very true, and I and I get this from our financial analysts who I've spoken to, is that you might think that climate change is a disaster for insurance companies because they're going to be involved with a higher incidence of, of perils that come to fruition. But in fact, these folks are, are pretty smart that are running these insurance companies. They learn and they realize that there's going to be a higher incidence of perils and a higher cost and they charge for it. And it actually creates more business for them as long as they manage the risk effectively. And it makes their enterprises more valuable to invest in. But in order to do this, they have to have the kind of information that you're able to furnish them. And they need to be able to have enough time to spread things over a long enough period of time so that when you do have three events in a short period of time, it doesn't cause them to be insolvent. But having that high fidelity information, which you guys are providing, is really critical. What is the probability of these events today compared to what they used to be, whether it be hurricanes or fires or floods? How has that changed? And how frequently are you finding that you need to update these models because you're getting new scientific information that's really having a big change that needs to go to the insurance companies. And I'll just say anecdotally, I have a house on Cape Cod. It's actually a condominium, but I'm on the board, so I see our insurance rates. And they go up every year, even if we have five years in a row without having a hurricane. They just keep on going up. There's obviously a lot going on that the insurance companies are, are realizing that the circumstances continue to change. Yes. Since you brought up your premiums going up, I, I would like to explain that your uh, premium goes up for two reasons. One could be the risk is going up, but the other dominant impact is the cost to replace your house goes up. Um, so a premium is really a rate times a value. You know, the cost to replace the same house today as it was even three years ago is about 25% higher according to our wow. studies. So wow. I think it's important for everyone to know that the premium is really a multiplication of a rate times the value of your home and not the market value, not the sales value, but the cost to replace it. And our studies have shown the construction costs generally rise at about double the rate of inflation. So insurance companies have to keep that current because you wouldn't want, let's say you, you built a house for $500,000, but you know, a decade later, it would cost you seven, 750000 to rebuild it. You would want to make sure your insurance covers that. Can I just ask you about one thing you just said, because it's very unintuitive, which is that construction costs increase at double the rate of inflation. And I could see that being the case over a short period of time. For example, lumber costs were up 100% one year recently. 
uh, as a result of the pandemic and such. But I would think over a longer period of time, wouldn't you expect sort of reconstruction to keep pace with inflation? Or is there something structural going on there that I'm not appreciating? What we build today is very different from what we built even 10 years ago. Oh, of course. Right. Um, if you think about the materials being used, we're also hopefully making homes more resistant you know, to these uh, natural hazards. So I think it's a combination of what we're building today, how we're building them, and how much that costs. Got it. So, for example, I build a house today. I put a heat pump instead of an air conditioning compressor, and a heat pump costs twice as much. It has this new technology. Things cost more. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. I apologize for interrupting, but I just had to understand that. So let's go to the climate change point around the, the probability of the incidence of these events. So, and I, I will just point out again that the rising construction cost is really outpacing the influence of climate change to date. But let's talk about what, what, how much climate change is impacting your, your premiums. So as I mentioned earlier, the scientific consensus is we have high confidence, hurricanes, floods, wildfires, what's happening with each. Hurricanes, we, uh, we believe that they are not, it sounds counterintuitive again, but not so much increasing in frequency, but in severity. So what's happening is we're seeing more major hurricanes, category three, fours, and fives. So the proportion of major hurricanes is increasing uh, over time. The impact that has, I think, is very interesting. You know, we talk about extreme events and extreme losses, you know, up to, a, say, over 100 billion we could have for a major hurricane. But what increase in severity is really doing, it's increasing the frequency of major storms all along the coastline that may not be a Miami or a Galveston, Houston. So it's really increasing the probabilities of 20, 30, 40, $50 billion losses. And we're seeing that with Ida, with Laura, you know, with mm -hmm. many of the recent hurricanes, we're seeing they're not the really extreme events because they're not hitting populated areas. And I think that's, oh, you mentioned real estate. My favorite saying, I will say, Tony, is hurricanes are like real estate. It's location, location, location. Hurricane Michael hit the panhandle of Florida. In 2018, it cost about 15 billion. That same storm would have hit Miami, it would have been 150 billion. It's really about location. What we're seeing is we're seeing more intense storms hitting not our most populated areas along the coast, but our more moderately populated areas. And that's pushing up the 20, that's 30, not, 40 billion. But there's nothing about the science, if you will. I mean, we had Katrina hit New Orleans, of course, right? So any of these storms could hit the big populated areas. It's just a, it's just a matter of time, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just a matter of time. The probability of that 100 billion is going up, but the probability of 20, 30, 40 billion dollars events is going up more. It's going up faster because there are more places along the coastline where we can have those size losses from major storms. Overall, how more frequent do your models tell us these storms are, these perils, the incidence of these perils? Well, it, it's a little shocking for hurricanes. I would say it even shocks me when I look at the numbers because they just grow so fast. Because people are moving to the coastlines, you know, we're building bigger homes right in harm's way. They cost more to build. 
rough rule of thumb, we're like doubling the loss potential every 10 years. It used to be, you know, $100 billion losses were about a one in 100, but now that's down to about one in 50. Okay, so we should expect about one in 50 uh, a hurricane loss over 100 billion. That's about a 2% probability. And we're seeing these $20 billion losses or more like every five years. It goes up faster than you would think. Okay. So is it fair to say then that if I live in Miami, there's a 50% greater chance that there's going to be a Hurricane 5 storm than there was 50 years ago? Can you conclude something like that? The dramatic change is really in the losses, again, which is a combination of the science and more dominated by the increase in property values. So what you could say is that not necessarily a cap five, but the probability of a major hurricane, three, four or five, is it's not 50% higher, but it's it's a much smaller percentage higher all along the coastline than it was, and I wouldn't say 10 years ago, I would say in the last century. You know, our hurricane data goes back to 1900, and we normally extrapolate from all that data. But now what we have to do, not to go too much into the weeds, but we to build our models, we have to go back and take all that historical data and adjust it to say, okay, if those events happened in the current climate, what would our probabilities look like? It's kind of like if you had $100 in 1950, what would that be worth today? So it's kind of the same type of methodology. So that's not going up by 50%. In fact, um, it may be surprising after this conversation, but we estimate that on average, the average loss is from hurricanes, from the change from climate change is about 1% per year. But again, it's multiples of that for the increase in property values that are being built in harm's way. So with hurricanes, we've quantified it as about 1% increase every year from these impacts of more severe. Now for wildfire, wildfires are being more significantly impacted by climate change. So if the current rate of increase remained from today to 50 years from now, roughly speaking, and ignoring compounding, (laughs) the chance of having a big event 50 years from now would be 50% higher than it would be today. I mean, big event is too vague. The expected loss from hurricanes grows by 1% a year just due to climate change. Not including the fact that the size of the loss is greater because construction is growing at twice the rate of inflation. Exactly. And the probability change by event, now that varies along the coastline. So now, if you bring fire into the equation, and we're all aware that the fires in California have been much more prevalent than we're ever used to previously, that is something that is happening much more frequently as a result of climate change just in the last decade. Is that correct? In your estimation? Yes, that is correct. Of all all the perils that we model, wildfire is the most sensitive to climate change. And we're already seeing the most increase in both the frequency and the severity, i.e. the size uh, of wildfires, um, is increasing much faster 
um, than, for example, the increase in hurricane intensity. Here we see the, the increases are much more significant. So if we're, we're going out your time period, you know, we would see more like 100% increase in losses, not the 50%. And one of the things we do to look into the future, I didn't mention this earlier, is the IPCC in their reports, they do project out things like uh, temperatures, you know, but not only that, but this variable I call vapor pressure deficit, which they can project out to 2025, 2030, and 2050. They can go beyond, but the uncertainty becomes too large, we believe, to go beyond to, to 2050. But we can use our models uh, and the science collected by the IPCC to project, you know, what wildfire losses will look like in 2050. And as I said there, we see a much faster increase in the loss potential than we see for hurricanes. I've certainly read in the LA Times that there are numerous situations of regions where property owners can no longer obtain fire protection insurance. Why is that? I remember when I was a kid, you know, Lloyd's of London would insure anything as long as you wanted to pay the premium. What's going on there? Yeah, well, what a lot of people don't understand is insurance is highly regulated, okay? It's regulated by the states and particularly homeowners uh, insurance. So insurers cannot do whatever they want to do. Um, they can't charge whatever they want to charge. They have to get uh, rate increases approved and they have to, you know, make sure they comply with the regulations of different states. California, believe it or not, uh, has decided for one thing that they will not allow the catastrophe models for wildfire, uh, which is interesting because they are used there for earthquakes. And, uh, and I won't opine on the reason for that. As I mentioned, insurance companies need the catastrophe models, not just to price the risk, but to spread the risk. No homeowner would like it if their insurance company wrote all their policies in an area that we're all gonna be destroyed from a wildfire, the company goes bankrupt, the homeowner doesn't get paid. These are commercial businesses. They can look at whatever they want. I mean, it'd be sort of like saying to me that I'm not allowed to look at the you know private research services forecast on inflation in order to invest. Can an insurance company not reach out to Karen and purchase a catastrophe you know probability model on having you know, the hills of Los Angeles burned to the ground. I mean, how is that not, not allowed? Okay, so if you want to, if I want to say, I want to use the KCC model uh, to determine, you know, how much I need to charge homeowners to make sure I remain solvent um, and I'm being fair and reasonable, um, I have to file my rates with California and I have to tell them that I've used a catastrophe model. And to date, they will say, well, no, you can't use a catastrophe model. So you have to develop your rates some other way. And I know it sounds like a long time ago, but in the world of insurance, the catastrophe models came to be in the late 1980s, but right. actuaries, you know, have been traditionally for, you know, over 100 years, been estimating rates based on historical experience. So the actuarial approach would be, let's look at the last 10 years of experience or 20 years, whatever they have. But can't look at historical experience, especially when you have climate change, you know, you have other things changing in the environment, you need to use a model. So the regulators in any state can say, uh, no, you can't base your rates on a model. And that's what they've done 
in California so far. Now, of course, we're meeting with the regulators. We're trying to change that. And I think we will over time because, again, uh, the, the models are very sophisticated. They help the states make sure that the companies remain solvent, that they're being fair you know, and equitable among policyholders. I mean, again, I think policyholders do want, you know, that people who have higher risk should pay more. Now, if you well, want to subsidize, you can, but you should start with the with the true uh, risk-based premium. So, so, Karen, what is the situation as you understand it today in California? We have lots of listeners that are in California that might own homes in wooded or forested areas, particularly around some of these big cities. I would imagine their ability to get a mortgage is going to be contingent on their ability to get property and casualty insurance that covers all the major perils, um, which clearly includes fire. So does this mean that today in certain areas of California, people can't get mortgages probably because they can't get the the underlying PNC insurance that the borrower would require? Is that sort of what's happening? Well, I wouldn't say it's happening across the board, but obviously there are some very high-risk areas where I'm sure that is the case. But there are things we should talk about, Tony, that homeowners can do. Um, One of the things that the state of California is promoting are what they call mitigation credits. Okay, so if a homeowner uh, uh, undertakes some mitigation efforts, they can get credit for that and hopefully, you know, have a better opportunity at getting uh, the insurance. So what are things homeowners could do for wildfire? Well, probably the biggest thing is defensible space. Okay, you don't want like dried up trees and, you know, things that are combustible near your house. You need to clear all that vegetation. You make what's called a defensible space, making sure embers can't get into your eaves more fireproofing materials. So there are mitigation efforts that homeowners can take that will hopefully help them. And again, California is supporting that and making sure that they do get credits um, in their premiums for these activities. When one buys a home and they finance the home and they take out a mortgage, that mortgage could be for 30 years. And I wonder whether or not the lenders are taking into account today you know, you think the lenders would need to have catastrophe models in order to protect themselves because it may well be the case that at some point in the life of that loan, the insurance companies will stop writing the insurance on the property, like what's happening in California with respect to fires. I imagine the same thing could happen in Florida with respect to hurricanes. The incidents were to increase, and that would essentially mean that the lender was unprotected. Have you thought about selling your catastrophe models to banks because, you know, people that essentially people that are extending capital and securing it with property? Well, we do. Actually, we do have some major banks as our clients. The main interest so far has been earthquake and flood. And why is that the case? Well, the interesting thing is for hurricane and wind, you have to buy insurance. Okay, so everybody like the bank, you're going to have insurance. So if you're the home you have a mortgage on goes bad, you're going to have an insurance policy to cover it. But the interesting thing, and this is true about California, most of the major perils are either uninsured or underinsured. So earthquake, not there's not a lot of private insurance for earthquake, and the policies you can get through the fair plan are very limited, you know, in terms of cover. So there's a lot of interest in earthquake and also flood flooding losses. So there hasn't been as much interest yet in wildfire, but I assume it will come. And again, because banks are 
coming to realize that they also have exposure to many of these perils. To ask one last question for our, our clients that either own or are considering purchasing property in the hurricane areas, are there considerations around insurability in your mind going forward? Or are there rules that require, if you're going to do business in the state, you're required to offer PNC to homeowners for the things that banks require, such as hurricane and flood and such? Well, the interesting thing on hurricane and the coastal areas, that what, what most states have done, this includes Florida, Louisiana, is that uh, they've created a state-owned insurance company. So in Florida, it's called Citizens. If you can't get insurance in the private market, you can buy a policy through Citizens, which you know, maybe okay. The coverage is probably, I'm sure, is not as good as a private market. Uh, I will say, high-valued homeowners, they normally can get insurance in the in the private market. You know, even though you have insurance, Tony, nobody wants their house to be destroyed by right. hurricanes. So I think the advice I would give to homeowners is, if you're buying a new house, or certainly if you're building a house make sure you build it to even above the current building codes. But building codes have improved. Uh, there's an organization called the Institute for Business and Home Safety, sponsored by the insurance industry, and they have something called a fortified home. So they can tell you how to make your, your home fortified and how you can build it. Now, it's going to cost you a little bit more uh, to build a less vulnerable home, but it'll pay off on the long run um, with you know, reduced premiums, but also, you know, I mean, the hardship, the pain and suffering, if you have significant damage to your home or your community, um, basically, obviously outweighs, outweighs all of that. So, so I, I would just encourage people to make sure that the home is built to, I would say, even above standard, you know, above the minimum standard. I think that the, the takeaway really is just to have to be very cognizant of the risks and the perils and the financial costs of carrying that property properly, if you will, in light of those risks over a long period of time really need to be thought through at the outset because the incidents, whether it's growing at 1% a year or the overall reconstruction cost, you know, double inflation, which is at this point 7 or 8% a year at least, they really are going to add up over time. Unfortunately, climate change seems to be accelerating, not becoming uh, invisible. And so for uh, individuals and homeowners that really want to live in those areas, just have to be very, very thoughtful and have a long-term perspective, I think, and, and make sure you're prepared for the, those long-term costs to carry that property. That's probably the best advice that we, that we could give. Would you agree with that? Yes, I definitely believe in looking at the long run and um, thinking about, you know, rising risk and yes, making sure you're prepared for it for sure. Well, thank you so much, Karen. It's been a, a great episode. I want to remind all of our listeners that this is the first of a number of episodes that we're going to have on the economic impacts of climate change. We'll have mixed other episodes in there, but we'll identify the episodes when they do fall under this particular umbrella. And... Lastly, please go to WilmingtonTrust.com for a full roundup of our latest thoughts on the economy and the markets. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. 
Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. The opinions of any guest on the Capital Considerations podcast who are not employed by Wilmington Trust or m Bank are their own and do not necessarily represent those of m Bank Corporate or any of its affiliates. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk, and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Third-party trademarks and brands are the property of their respective owners. Third parties referenced herein are independent companies and are not affiliated with M&T Bank or Wilmington Trust. Listing them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Wilmington Trust. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definition of qualified purchaser and accredited investor. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide or seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risks including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank. Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only. Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA. Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA. Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC. And Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial, agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through m Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other businesses and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. Copyright 2023 M&T Bank and its affiliates and subsidiaries. All rights reserved.